Hello and welcome to Start Your Week from the Bunker, where we set up the news stories of the next seven days. I'm Justin Quirk. Joining me this morning to work out the week ahead is former diplomat, bunker regular and the host of Doomsday Watch, Arthur Snell. Good morning, Arthur. Morning, Justin. So today is obviously an unprecedented one with the Queen's funeral due to start later on. Arthur, how quickly are we expecting politics to return to business as usual once the service is over? Well, it might take a bit of a while, not least because this week is also the week of the UN General Assembly, which means that Liz Truss will be jetting off to New York, I suspect, tomorrow. I know that she's supposed to be meeting President Biden later in the week. So I think it's 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 going to take a few days for things to return to normal. But of course, you've got Kwasi Kwarteng's so-called fiscal moment in the works. So we'll be watching out for that as well. I mean, this was a real black swan event occurring just two days into Liz Truss's stint as PM. Do you think it's helped or hindered her so far? At the beginning, the orthodoxy was that it must help her because it's a solemn national moment and the Prime Minister has a role there which transcends politics. Having said that, I think Liz Truss she does struggle to appear to be equal to the importance, shall we say, the historical importance of this particular moment. She really isn't a good public speaker. She's, she doesn't have that sort of natural ability to, to give an emotionally connecting message in the way, for example, that Tony Blair did after Princess Diana's death. So I suspect it will, over time, emphasise her essential weakness as Prime Minister. And from a diplomatic point of view, what should we be looking out for at the service later on? Are there particular ways of reading the tea leaves at these events? Well, you may spot two world leaders having a you know very interesting whispered conversation when they should be concentrating on, on the sermon. I think a lot of that sort of stuff has already happened. So interesting that Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman of Saudi Arabia, although invited, has not been able to come. I suspect that was the Saudis, perhaps with a bit of nudging from the British side, deciding that they were a bit busy this week, rather than have the spectre of him show up and there be protests in the streets. You've got one or two other intriguing situations. So the the former king of Spain, who is sort of estranged from the current king and lives in exile in the UAE, he's here. But he and his son are not really on speaking terms. It'll be interesting to see what what happens there. And President Erdogan of Turkey definitely was invited, a controversial figure, but he's in New York, apparently. He was at Central Park yesterday afternoon. So that's an intriguing one. Parliament returns from recess on Wednesday when MPs will swear allegiance to the new King Charles. Arthur, other than a general debate about Ukraine on Thursday, what's the most pressing business that we should be looking out for as this new administration gets its feet under the table? Well, I've already alluded to the so-called fiscal event. For those people who don't have, you know, the luxury of of wallowing in the sort of royal story, there is an unprecedented cost of living crisis. It hasn't gone away. The Queen's death hasn't made it any less severe. And the government has to get its skates on. Now, they've announced the outlines of of a plan, which, of course, will give huge sums of money to energy firms but it will admittedly help people, albeit it will help wealthy people most. But there isn't yet a plan for businesses. All businesses, of course, have energy bills, and some businesses have quite high energy bills. And on current numbers, loads of small businesses will go to the wall in the next six months if they don't do something for that. So I think there's a huge amount of challenges which just haven't been thought through. And, you know, the government hasn't been doing governing for the last week. It's been doing 
dealing with the uh, passing of the monarch. You mentioned there the mini budget that new Chancellor Kwasi Kwarteng is expected to deliver this Friday. Do we know what we're expecting to be in that? Well, there are various hints being dropped and and the possibility of fairly radical sounding sort of economic ideas which come from this whole Britannia Unchained group that both Kwarteng and Truss are part of. This was the sort of thrusting young Tories of the early Cameron era who wanted to remake the British state. So there's this idea of having zones of the country where there are kind of special low tax areas of operation. Perhaps they'll choose where I live and then I'll pay less tax, but I don't think it works like that. But this is sort of an example of how these people are obsessed with the kind of supply side economics. They're they're obsessed with the idea that if we just create funny little areas where you don't pay tax, then businesses will suddenly spring up and and the wealth will trickle down. And, And yet, you know, the boring reality that if you look at countries that are really successful, it's very unusual that they do it that way. They do it by doing things like building infrastructure and giving businesses certainty, you know, not Brexiting, all those other crazy things we've done. So I think I think there'll be plenty to criticise, but quite a lot to chew over as well. The uh, Singapore on Thames model uh, draws ever closer. As you mentioned, the uh, UN General Assembly meet in New York this week and Liz Truss will be making her first appearance there. Other than the glaringly obvious of Ukraine, what's likely to be on the agenda, do you think? Well, I think it will be Ukraine, Ukraine and Ukraine. But then there, there, there are clearly some other major issues there. You've got that the economic crisis is a global one. And of course, it is largely caused by... Russia's invasion of Ukraine. But it's felt if we think we're in trouble, you know, look at what's happening for countries in Africa that are highly dependent on imports, both of energy and of and of food. Look at what's happening across the world in, in, in that sort of space. And then the, the, the wider sort of long running questions of climate change and other burning issues that humanity is just failing to grapple with. And as you mentioned, the uh, ongoing issue around energy prices and their knock-on effect on the economy has very much not gone away. But late last week, Goldman Sachs had some tentatively positive news about energy prices. Is there any hope here that we might be spared some of the more eye-watering predictions? I think there is a hope. And I think in the end, what we saw was what actually some predicted, which was that when the chips are down, Europe, having been far too complacent for ages about relying on Russian energy sources, Europe got its act together. You know, Germany, as many people will be well aware, is ahead of its schedule for topping up its gas tanks. And they're topping them up largely not from Russian sources. And they're building these new LNG plants and the new pipeline to get the gas from southern Europe, which is coming ultimately from Algeria and North Africa. So there are all these new projects. And the Russians probably will realize at some point during the winter that rather than holding everyone to ransom, what they've done is given them the impetus to wean themselves off Russian gas. I don't think that means it won't be a very tough winter, but it may not be the winter where everyone gives up and does what Putin wants. And staying with Ukraine, the last couple of weeks have seen a series of stunning advances by the military there, reclaiming vast amounts of territory which Russia had occupied. Arthur, are we expecting that pace to be maintained this week, or is it more likely there's going to be a sort of regrouping and retrenchment? I think you're going to see the regrouping and the pause. From some Western officials that I was speaking to last week, there was this view that they wanted to get ahead of Unger so that they could, the Ukrainians could arrive at Unger with a really serious 
sort of success that everyone could recognize and demonstrate to the world that they are not going to be defeated and that if you support them with the appropriate material and, and, and other, other types of support, that they will be able to beat the Russians in the field. But I think equally that, that this current sort of surge is, has, has sort of reached its current pause. There was an interesting story from last week's meeting between Putin and China's President Xi at the Shanghai Cooperation Organization Summit in Uzbekistan. Putin said that he appreciated, quote, the balanced position of our Chinese friends in connection with Ukraine, adding that we understand your questions and your concerns in this regard. Meanwhile, the Chinese made no mention whatsoever of Ukraine. Um, This seems a bit of a shift from their public statements in February, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, what's interesting about the February statement is it was just before the invasion and China talked about the partnership without limits with Russia. Now, of course, like lots of relationships, you can say there's no limit, but then if your partner does something that's really off the scale, you might seek to sort of revisit some of those commitments. And I think that's what's happened. You know, China, for all that China has no interest in seeing kind of Western power and influence increase, they equally have no interest in a world in which countries can invade their neighbours. China has territorial disputes with India, for example. So China doesn't need the kind of chaotic sort of pre-Westphalian world that that Putin is trying to to bring back. Uh, And so in that sense, I wasn't that surprised the way China responded. In a way, what was more surprising was Putin feeling he had to admit to it publicly. I mean, China's at least been paying lip service to supporting Russia, but are we getting any sense of how they're actually reacting to the situation on the ground? I mean, Russia seems to be having to shop around for equipment from places like Iran, which would suggest that the Chinese are perhaps not delivering in full. Yeah, I think where where the Chinese support basically comes is they're buying the Russian oil and gas. And in that sense, clearly, that's the lifeblood of the Russian economy. We've already talked about how the Europeans are buying much less of it. So that that is very significant. But it's also very kind of mercantilist. If China suddenly was offered a whole load of cheaper energy from somewhere else, I'm sure that they'd, they'd go for it. So I, I don't think that there's any kind of strategic support there. It, it's more of a of, of just a sort of pragmatic choice to, to buy their energy. There isn't much evidence that the Chinese are supporting the Russians in in really a significant kind of military or, or intelligence or that kind of way, and certainly nothing like what the Western countries are doing for Ukraine. So I think in that sense, China is doing what it often does, which is it's keeping its distance and looking after its own interests. The other sort of major power in that region, obviously, we discussed India. Um, Now, they've largely been a Russian ally, but they also seem to give Putin something of a public dressing down at the summit last week, saying now is not the time for war. Um, What should we read into that? Well, that is very interesting. And from the outset, the position of India was intriguing because India again, had quite good relations with Ukraine. India, you know, prides itself in, in being a democratic country and, re- you know, respect for international borders, talking already about the, the territorial disputes that India has with China, but also with Pakistan. There are lots of reasons why India would not approve of what Russia did. But of course, India has been heavily reliant on Russian defense supplies for decades. So India trod a fairly cautious path but then Modi came out at, at, at the meeting last week. And I just wonder whether actually Modi's looking at how badly it's gone for Russia. And, and in that sense, China might be doing similar and thinking, well, it doesn't, Russia doesn't look like they're winning this. We don't have a lot to gain by suggesting that we were up for it all along. And so this is sort of people pre-positioning, get it, getting their excuse in early for when 
actually things don't end the way Russia hoped. We've also seen border clashes in the past few days between Armenia and Azerbaijan and also Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan. Are these related to what's going on in Russia? I think you can relate it to some extent. So Armenia and Azerbaijan, uh, historically, Armenia has enjoyed support from Russia, whereas Azerbaijan has a sort of cultural and historic link that makes it more aligned with Turkey. In the war, there was a brief war last year where Azerbaijan retook territory from Armenia, making use of some of these Turkish drones that we've also seen the Ukrainians use. So that's a case study of how an increasingly sophisticated and powerful Turkey is able to offer its allies a kind of stronger position. So I think we're seeing that where if if countries have a historic attachment to Russia, their historic opponent sees an opportunity to take advantage. Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, I think it's more a case of historically uh, the Russians were seen as a peacekeeping force in that rather troubled region of Central Asia. And again, you know, Russia's power and influence and actually the number of troops on the ground have just fallen rapidly. So so we are seeing a, a sort of collapse of Russian power. You know, Kazakhstan, again, very reliant on Russian security assistance when they experienced a sort of coup situation last year. This year have effectively kind of walked away from from the sort of Russian sphere of influence. So I think a lot is changing for Russia and, and, and in ways that demonstrate what a bad choice they made when they invaded Ukraine. Meanwhile, back in Europe, next Sunday sees the general election in Italy. Who are we expecting to be the winners and losers there? Well, the big story in Italy is the Brothers of Italy, which is a genuinely fascist party uh, led by Giorgia Meloni, and they look like they may well be headed for government. Now, what's interesting about Italian politics is it's incredibly volatile. So people will remember the five-star movement and Salvini, and, and he was seen as, rightly seen as, a hard-right sort of interloper into Italian politics. But but what happens in Italy is you get these parties that that go from nowhere, surge up in popularity, enter government, and then often fail to deliver on the promises they've made, and and then sort of collapse in in into uh, comparative obscurity. Only a few years ago, this Brothers of Italy party was polling less than five percent, and now they look likely to win an election. As you said, that I mean they are commonly termed a far right party, and what does that actually mean in practice within Italian politics? I mean, how extreme are they relative to other European parties of that ilk? It's a tough comparison, but if we look at Meloni, the the leader, I mean, she has publicly praised Mussolini, which is you know that's sort of going there, if you like, you know, that's kind of the the last taboo, perhaps. She is rather obsessed with immigration and immigration in particular has been, you know, a a feature of her campaign. And of course, that's something that you see across far-right parties. And, and, you know, you see it in this country as well, don't you? She also talks about woke ideology destroying the foundations of the natural family. So again, you know, that, that might sound familiar to some of us. I would say that her kind of messaging is quite similar to the modern US Republican Party. So it's this combination of extreme positions on immigration and extreme cultural positions. Interestingly, where she's actually different to Salvini, who who himself was far right, is in her approach to Russia. The the Italian right has traditionally been very happy to cozy up to the Russians. And in fact, Salvini tried to get money from them. But Meloni, from the Brothers of Italy, 
she's much more cautious on that. And I think that's basically because for all the extreme positions that she's taking, what we're also seeing is the fact that Italy is receiving billions in EU aid on the back of the um, COVID uh, sort of recovery funds. And Italy knows, you know, where its bread is buttered. So I think she is going to take all kinds of positions that are extremely unpleasant, but she's not kind of kind of blow up the system of how Italy interacts with its neighbours. And finally, other stories we're keeping an eye on this week. More than 560 workers at the port of Liverpool begin a two-week walkout tonight over pay. On Wednesday, President Biden will be addressing the UN General Assembly. On Thursday, the Bank of England sets interest rates, with economists predicting they could rise to 2.25%, which is the highest level since 2008. And also that day, Health Secretary Therese Coffey is expected to set out her four-step action plan to support the NHS this winter. And next Sunday, the Labour Party conference kicks off in Liverpool. And that is Start Your Week. Arthur, thank you for getting up early. It's been a pleasure. Listeners, thank you for joining us. If you're enjoying the shows we produce, the best way to keep them coming is to follow us on Patreon, where your support can directly fund Start Your Week and our other shows, including Oh God, What Now? and Arthur's Doomsday Watch. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast, where a few pounds a week gets you the shows early and without ads, along with all the other perks. Thank you for listening. We'll see you tomorrow for the panel show. Good news, your favourite history nerds are back. Yes, we at We Are History have been trawling the history shelves of our local bookshops. Well, I have, John. You mostly went round finding your books and moving them to the front of the displays. If I can find them, it's a bonus. We are ready to tell you all about what we've learned, from the revolting French to some revolting women. Via some Brits abroad and a foul-mouthed Irishman. So, download We Are History. Our laughable attempt at a silly history podcast. With me, John O'Farrell and me Angela Barnes wherever you get your podcasts Story A Week from the Bunker was written and presented by Justin Quirk with Arthur Snell the producers were Jacob Archbold Yelena Sofronievich and Alex Reese. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis, and the audio producer was me, Jay Bailey. Group editor Andrew Harrison, theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.